ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Web3 is one of the world's fastest growing industries, and the SoFi Web3 ETF is designed to make it easier than ever for investors to put their dollars into the technology they're most excited about. The SoFi Web3 ETF is the first Web3 fund on the market, and it provides investors with access to the companies powering the next tech revolution and driving a decentralized approach to the internet, such as the metaverse and artificial intelligence. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus. A prospectus may be obtained by visiting SoFi Web3 ETF at www.sofi.com slash invest slash ETF slash TWeb. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Bob Hum, U.S. Head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock, and Hitendra Varsani, Managing Director of MSCI Solutions Research. And the three of us are going to have a conversation around factor investing, uh, tilting portfolios towards factors such as value or mo uh, momentum, minimum volatility, quality. And we're going to do this through the lens of both the current market environment and then also what the markets might look like next year. And it's interesting. So iShares recently published their 2023 Year Ahead Investor Guide, and we'll get into this, but their base case is higher for longer interest rates and sticky inflation. That basically it's going to take a while for the Fed to bring inflation back down to their 2% target. And so we're going to discuss what that could mean for equity portfolio allocations and how different factors might perform if that is the environment we'll be in for a while. And I know I've said this before, but Bob and Hitendra, we're talking about two true experts in this space. They know factor investing inside and out. So this should be an excellent conversation. And one that I think you'll want to pay attention to, even if you just set and forget your portfolio, because no matter what you do as an investor, you do have factor tilts, whether you uh, realize it or not. So we'll get into all of that in uh, just a bit. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. And I'm very excited about our topic. We're going to talk trend following, which some of you may not know this, 
Tom is a bit of a maestro when it comes to a trend following. This is absolutely a bread and butter topic for him. So let's chat with Tom now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, great having you back on the uh, podcast. You are the maestro. I, I don't feel it, Nate. I, I, I need my little wooden stick to start waving it around. <laughs> but thanks so much for that. And uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Hey, uh, you too. And, and look, we'll talk uh, trend following here in just a moment. But we are winding down the year here. I'm just curious, how's everything going over at uh, Vetify? I assume busy as always. It's great. Uh, it's been a great year. And thanks again for your partnership. Uh, we've really enjoyed all the things that we've been able to do together. Uh, it's been a challenging year for markets, for sure. I mean, the first time in 40 years where both equity markets and bond markets are down. But those are the times when advisors and investors need more uh, education, strategy discussions, and you bring it to them every week. So thank you for that, and congratulations. No, I appreciate that, Tom, and, and certainly not without the help of the uh, experts over at Vetify. I've really enjoyed this partnership, and uh, I, I think listeners have as well. Um, so look, I was sitting here thinking about this. The uh, exchange conference, we're like less than two months away from that. I, I feel like it, uh, it snuck up on me. It's hard to believe. It is. It did sneak up on us because we actually pushed our February conference to April this year. Uh, the first time we did our own ETF conference with our friends over at Advisor Circle. Uh, now we're sticking to that February date, February 5th through 8th, again, in Miami at the Fountain Blue Resort. We're really excited, but you're right. This year flew by. Uh, however, we've been working hard. We've got a lot of great advisors that are helping us out on the production side. Uh, it, we've got some milestones to celebrate. It's going to be the 30-year celebration of SPY, the first ETF in the U.S. We're going to be talking about the evolution of ETFs and what role they'll play in the future. We're going to have some of the top minds on Wall Street discussing world markets, portfolio construction strategies. There's a lot going on. Well, I'm excited for it. I mean, there's no question that is the ETF event of the year. And, uh, you know, I think having it in February down in Miami, I, I think everybody's looking forward to that. I'll tell you, I'm looking out the window right now and it's about 35 degrees and raining here where I'm at. So uh, I'm already looking forward to a, to a little beach time. Um, all right, Tom. So uh, quickly here before we talk trend following, as I think you're aware, on next week's podcast, I'll be recapping the year in ETFs and then looking ahead to 2023. So I'll be joined by uh, Vetify's own Laura Krigger, which is always a treat. And then uh, Morningstar's Ben Johnson, which uh, that's actually become an annual tradition. Ben's joined me, I believe, the last five years for that particular episode. And I, I don't want to steal their thunder, but I did want to give you an opportunity to offer a few quick thoughts as we close out the year, because uh, obviously you follow the ETF space as closely as anyone. So do you maybe want to give us your uh, top ETF story of 2022 and then maybe one ETF story on your radar as we look ahead to next year, or even a, a prediction, if you'd like, w what would you say for each? 
Yeah, I well, it's great that you're going to have Lauren Ben back. It is a great tradition. You probably should insist that they sing "Old Lang Syne" together as well. They both have wonderful singing voices. So, as as far as top story, there are a lot of top stories, but I would say the biggest would be the return of active management. I mean, the ETF business was built on the backs of passive strategies, traditional indexes. And if you came out of the financial crisis and just bought the S&P 500, you would have done pretty well up until lately. Uh, however, you know, the FANG stocks, the Teslas of the world have been challenged lately. And when, you know, you look at the Spiva report, and, and I, don't, I know you do, Nate, I mean, it was pretty telling where this year's report, which is put out by S&P, the S&P indices versus active report, Active management uh, did the best it's been in almost 15 years. So there's some great active managers out there. And on top of that, a lot of these active managers have recently found their way into the ETF business. You look at companies like T. Rowe Price, Capital Group, Newberger Berman, Alliance Bernstein, Morgan Stanley's coming on hard. So uh, there is a space for active management. And uh, when markets are challenged, and if you're a passive manager, it's it's a lonely business, especially for financial advisors. So we're seeing more advisors adapt uh, active strategies along with their passive strategies in portfolio construction. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that's uh, one of the top ETF stories this year, the rise of active. And you look at flows. I mean, active ETFs have had outsized flows given the uh, the, the total percentage of uh, industry assets that they comprise. They've had a greater percentage of flows. We've seen more active than passive ETF launches. You mentioned some of the huge names that have uh, gotten involved this year in the space. I think we're going to see more of that in 2023. You know, really the, the key here is the performance. And I know you and I have talked about that quite a bit. You mentioned the SPIVA uh, scorecard and active has performed better, but we know it's a challenge to sustain that performance or, or have that performance be consistent over longer periods of time. But the market environment has changed. And I do think more advisors and investors are receptive to doing something different than the benchmark indices. And I think that this is going to be something to watch moving forward. I, I, this is probably kind of crude, but I think people look at the ETF space. The you know Obviously, its roots are in passive. That was sort of ETFs 1.0. Then we went to a smart beta ETFs. So that was sort of ETFs 2.0. And some would say active is 3.0. And because of the these huge names that are getting involved, they're really going to put some marketing muscle and some education uh, educational muscle behind uh, their efforts. So, you know, the one thing we know about the ETF wrapper, Tom, is obviously uh, it lowers, you typically have a lower cost. And so we know fees are one of the biggest hurdles for active manager overcoming that fee hurdle. Well, ETFs have lower costs. And then the other thing is the tax efficiency of the ETF wrapper. Uh, and so if you combine the lower cost and the tax efficiency, it does lower that hurdle for outperformance. And, uh, you know, that that's that should certainly help on the uh, active side. OK, what about as we look ahead to, to 2023? I mean, do you have a prediction or, or something that you're going to be watching closely in the ETF space? Well, one thing that's coming to life, and I know you're probably paying attention to it too, Nate, is all of a sudden China's rebounding. Um, it may be because the Chinese government is on a mission. Uh Coronavirus protocols have been relaxed. The Chinese government uh, and the banks have been clear about supporting real estate, uh, real estate efforts for sure. We're, we're seeing people back at uh, casinos. 
So stocks across the board have rebounded tremendously. And, you know, one of the benchmarks <laughs> that we look at is the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, which was down 80% off its high. Uh, however, coming off of the rebound November 1st going forward, it's up almost 50%. Um, so really surprising. China's not going away. China's not going to disconnect from the world. Uh, they are very capitalistic in nature. And even though there's some concern about whether it be saber rattling among the governments or delisting Chinese stocks on U.S. exchanges, they're going to find a way to get through that. So uh, I would say that's probably teeing up to be a great story where China, the China rebound into 2023 may be something to pay attention to. And uh, as we know, it, U.S. investors tend to have a home country bias. Advisors that manage money in the U.S. for clients tend to have a home country bias. Don't overlook China. There's some great values there. Talking to our friends over at Matthews Asia, they're saying that this is a multi-decade opportunity where many um, the valuations from a PE standpoint with many big, widely held Chinese stocks are in single digits, uh, things that we have not seen in 20 years. So um, again, fingers crossed, uh, it would be great to see this happen. Um, especially as a trend follower. And I know that's something we want to talk about, too. I, I like that one. That one's a little uh, outside the box. I, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, we, we could see a rebound in, in China ETFs. And it's interesting because coming into this year, there was a lot of talk about how you exclude China uh, from your from your holdings, especially if you're, say, a broad emerging market uh, investor. But, you know, to your to your broader point there, international stocks are something that I've thought a lot about because we know the story there. It's been so difficult over the past decade plus. I mean, both uh, developed international and emerging market uh, equities have basically been dead money for the better part of 10 years. Now, we know that that's going to, to change at some point. And, there, you know, but both U.S. stocks and then international stocks, both, you know, there's a baton that gets passed back and forth and both can go long stretches of uh, underperforming or outperforming. But I think that's one that a lot of advisors and investors, they've sort of thrown in the towel on uh, international just because they can't stomach that <laughs> underperformance. Yeah. And maybe that's right, right at the time when it's going to turn. Well, that's what usually happens, right, Nate? I mean, it, you not only see a bear market, but then when people just give up. And they and they walk away. I mean, uh, I read a, a piece yesterday about there's some statistics out there that people are finally giving up on Kathy Wood. And you know that when that happens, when the last people who've been there following her throw in the towel, that's the time to look for the rebound. And and you know, again, trends change and emotions can be a big part of investing as well. You never want to operate on your gut. Uh, but if there are long-term investors, the Warren Buffetts of the world, those are the folks that come in when not only the values are there and you can buy stocks on the cheap, but when people have thrown in the towel and said, I'm never coming back, that's the, that's the best time to look at those types of stocks. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. 
Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Okay, so this is the perfect segue here to talk uh, trend following, because to your point, following uh, the, the trends can remove that emotion and, and bias. And, you know, this is a topic that I probably haven't spent as much time on as I should on, on this podcast, just given how prevalent its use seems to be among advisors and investors. And, you, you know, trend following, I think at its basic level, I'll describe it as using disciplined uh, buy or sell signals to ride a market trend up or avoid big drawdowns, and, and certainly you can go short on those as well. But, uh, Tom, over the weekend, you had mentioned a surprising stat to me regarding advisors and trend following. And so I thought, let's maybe start there, and then we can talk about trend following in the current market environment. Do you want to offer that stat up? I, I think listeners would find this surprising. Yeah, well, we're surveying advisors all the time, Nate, and uh, over 40% of advisors that we survey implement some form of trend following uh, with their client allocation strategies. And, uh, you know, it wasn't surprising because we talk to advisors a lot. And, and most importantly, if you have long-term uptrends, it's okay to be a buy and hold asset allocator. But when major trends change, and let's just talk about major trends. So uh, a, a, a long-term technical indicator is the 200-day moving average. There are periods of time in bull markets when the major markets are above their 200-day average for an extended period of time. Uh, however, the 200-day average, probably for Wall Street, is the most followed technical indicator. Uh, it really defines those long-term trends. And you can put a 200-day average on anything, on stocks, on mutual funds, on ETFs. And as long as if you're a trend follower and you're following a discipline, you buy when it goes above the 200-day average and you sell when it goes below. Um, you know, advisors use technical analysis to help guide their allocation. And, and there's more confidence when you're above the trend line where you may be overweight, less confidence when you're below the trend line, so you may underweight or in fact sell. But a lot of advisors play, pay close attention to indicators like that, which help determine not just their allocation, but their weighting. So it, it's it's really important to understand that you if you own something, that's great. How much you own and what percentage it is in the portfolio is also just as critical or sometimes more important, right? Yeah, I think I was just surprised. 40% was higher than I would have expected. And I think there's this perception out there that uh, a lot of advisors do just, you know, buy and hold a, a portfolio. Now, I'm going to talk out of both sides here, Tom, because some people may be surprised to learn that the ETF store actually offers a, a trend following strategy. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before. And as usual, not investment advice, right? Do your own research and homework. But We've offered this for about uh, 10 years now, and I'm very proud of it. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, but it's really for a certain type of client who 
they want to have that exposure to the markets, but they, they want to have that downside protection as well and, and have that implemented in a disciplined way. So, you know, I guess on one hand, I, I was surprised that number was that high. But then again, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm offering it uh, through our yeah. advisory firm so, as well. So, Nate, really, really quick. I mean, when you sit down with clients and you can show them a chart and you show what trend following can do, I mean, yeah, it allows you to participate on the upside and maybe you don't get it all. But being able to avoid those long-term trends, you know, like we've seen in the last couple of years, it just allows your clients to sleep, sleep a little better at night, right? It, it does. Now, I will say something that I've learned about trend following, uh, even if it works perfectly, as always, investor behavior can still trump that. Like if investors can't stick with a trend following strategy, no matter how well Tom, you explain it to them, no matter how well executed that strategy is, it doesn't matter if they can't stick with it. Uh, do, do you yeah. have any thoughts on the investor behavior side of the equation here? Because I, I feel like trend following strategies, I mean, they can be really tough behaviorally. You can go long periods of time underperforming, <laughs> like with uh, international stocks. Well, you, you can. Um, and, and one of the toughest things is whipsaws during an ongoing bull market, where the your, your moving average might go below, but it might just tease you where you end up selling and then it turns around and goes back above and you've got to buy again. Those little whipsaws can eat away at performance, right, Nate? So the, those things are painful for clients when, in fact, they may look at a S&P 500 over a period of time. And if all you did is bought it coming out of the financial crisis for 10 years, it really would have been tough to beat. However, when you have a period like we've gone through the last couple of years, or you go through the financial crisis or the period, you know, 2000 to 2002, being able to sidestep the major part of that decline, it's life changing because we know a lot of people wrote that out with buying whole portfolios, ended up pulling the trigger and exiting at the bottom. And it took them five years to get confidence to go back in, right? Yeah, and we described the, the whipsaw that you mentioned, you know, we view that as an insurance premium, right? You, you, you may underperform, you're paying those little, those little premiums along the way, getting whipsawed in and out to then uh, hopefully catch a major trend one way or another. And, you know, really 2022 has been a good example because trend following strategies on, on the whole have worked really well in sidestepping what we've seen in both the, uh, the, the equity and the, and the bond markets. By the way, Tom, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here because some listeners may not be aware that trend following has been uh, near and dear to your heart for a long time. So I, I mentioned at the top, you're a bit of a maestro here. And I remember a conversation that you and I had at one of the ETF conferences last year where you were telling me the story of how you got started in trend following. And of course, the website that you became synonymous with is ETF Trends, right? ETF Trends. You run Global Trends Investments. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but do you mind telling uh, that story, at least the uh, the abbreviated version? I, I love that. Yeah. Well, so really quick, um, I, I began an advisor in the mid-90s uh, using trend following to buy uh, and sell mutual funds for client portfolios. So, you know, when things were good, like in the, in the 90s, fantastic, you know, there, uh, it was a great growth market, as we all know. Um, however, value was challenged during that period and having balanced portfolios. I'm buying mutual funds in their in client accounts, custodying at Charles Schwab. Back then, 
um, it was wise to call the fund company and tell them I'm buying. I use a trend following technique. As long as we're above the 200 day average, we stay invested. When we go below, we sell. I'll give you a call. And that's what would happen. And it was fine on the growth side, but on the value side, we got whipsawed a little bit and they were happy to take the money on the upside, but they would let you know afterwards, well, we don't like that type of investment. Please don't use our ETFs, I mean, our mutual funds again. Okay, so fast forward to 2000. In, in the March of 2000, as many know, major market indexes went below their 200-day average. We raised our cash positions in a big, big way. Markets declined for the next couple of years. We were fortunate to sidestep the lion's share of, the, of that decline. And then all of a sudden, those companies that were um, pushing us away were calling up and saying, hey, you know, we could work with your strategy again. But we didn't want to go back. Um, there was this thing called an ETF that had started seven years earlier, and we were tracking them and we realized we could use those to get our proper placement in the marketplace. And we didn't have to ask mom and dad for permission to buy and sell. We could just trade it uh, through Schwab. And that's what we ended up doing. And fast forward to 2005, in, in hopes of educating more clients and prospective clients, we threw up a website called ETF Trends. Uh, and the more we wrote, the more people showed up. And then one day State Street called and said, hey, uh, is there any way we could advertise on your site? And we never thought about making money around it. Um, and as time developed, I wrote a couple books. Um, and the first one was uh, iMoney, Profitable ETF Strategies with John Wasik, who's a pretty well-known business writer, and followed up with the ETF Trend Following Playbook which again, just talks about the, the basics of following trends and how trends around the world, whether it's uh, global equity markets, bond markets, sectors, or thinly sliced areas of the market, they all operate on their own trends. And you know, fast forward to today, Nate, uh, everybody's got a lot of choice about different areas of the market they wanna follow. And if there's an area that tends to be aggressive at times, it's really easy to stick a moving average on it and use that as an indicator to be overweight or underweight or sell if things get a, get a little nasty. So that's kind of the Reader's Digest version, but I think everybody can learn from trend following uh, and that tends to come to the forefront after we've had a bear market. Uh, so more people are talking about trends these days. I like to use it as an opportunity to talk about buying opportunities for the future now rather than uh, areas that you might want to exit. I, I love that story. And look, I was mentioning the uh, sort of the negative behavioral side of trend following, just whether or not investors can stick with it. But clearly, the biggest benefit of trend following, if you can stick with it, is it actually can remove that emotion in human behavior from the process. Because to your point, you can, whatever your criteria is, you can slap that trend following methodology on pretty much any asset class. And that can remove, that can help you make those decisions on either the upside or the downside. That's the benefit if you can stick with it. And I guess on that note, Tom, I, I don't want to uh, run out of time here. I mean, as you look at the current markets right now, and we, we can just take U.S. equities, or you, you can discuss whatever asset class you want, but I'm just curious, what are you seeing from a trend following perspective right now? Well, as we as we speak, I'm not sure if you saw uh, 
the, the market this morning, Nate, but we've had a, a really nice push. And as of today, uh, this little move is putting the S&P 500 above its 200 day average. Uh, so it, it also is, is putting other major indicators above their 200 day averages. Um, again, without predicting, because we don't know uh, what inflation is going to mean in the future. We don't know how successful the Fed's going to be. We don't know if we're going to go into a recession and how deep that might be. However, there's definitely neg negative sentiment. There are also areas of the world that are trading on very, very attractive valuations. Uh, there's some momentum in certain areas. We brought up China uh, for sure. So uh, it's a great time today as we're wrapping up uh, 2022 to look at your portfolio and maybe identify areas that may have shown certain strength, um, put a 200 day average on it. And if you've got some money that's on the sidelines and although in your gut, you may not be feeling great, institute a simple trend following model and see what happens. Uh, you could get whipsawed and you could discard it. However, I think the biggest thing, Nate, is as you and I are, get a little bit longer in the tooth. It's nice that uh, we've been able to make money over time, but one thing we don't have is the time that, uh, that our kids have. And I try to keep, teach younger investors, I try to teach my kids, hey, put as much money away as you can because that time will work for you. And you won't have to be um, a trend follower. You can just buy and allocate over time. However, once you get older, that money means that much more to you. You don't want to give it back. You don't want to run through bear markets. So instituting trend following in later years makes a lot of sense, especially if you happen to be retired or working with an advisor because avoiding 20 or 30% bear markets in your portfolio or, or a big chunk of that uh, can help you sleep better at night. We know a lot of people this past year haven't been sleeping that well. No, I think that's wise counsel. And it's interesting with our trend following strategy, that's exactly who is using it. It's it's retirees or people close to retirement where they just can't uh, stomach seeing a, a 20 or 30 percent drawdown, but they still want to have that potential for upside. Right. So you could just say, OK, if you don't want to have the potential for that drawdown, just have a conservative portfolio. Right. Being fixed income or whatever. But you, there's, there's certain people that they want to pursue that upside as well. And trend following can be a good strategy for that. Again, if they can stick with it. But by the way, Tom, just like a minute left here, do you have any thoughts on ETFs that sort of package trend following up like I think of the uh, pacer ETFs right they can uh, do all of this for you it's an tax efficient wrapper any quick thoughts on on those yeah and that's a great company to look at because they have a variety of trend following strategies and you know what over the period that they've they've launched them some have done well they've all done exactly what they're supposed to do so a couple of them got whipsawed and their performance is a little bit out of whack. Others have done specifically what they're supposed to do. So uh, trend following tends to show their true colors over an extended period of time. If you happen to start during a period where there are a lot of whipsaws, you can kind of look at it and lose faith, but it works over time. Also, I've got to say um, our friend Meb Faber wrote a wonderful paper after, uh, prior to the financial crisis. I wrote it in 2007. And, he, and we joke about it because nobody read it in 2007 because you didn't need trend following. 
after 2009, he had about 200,000 downloads of that paper because after the fact, people realized that if they put something like that to work, it, it would be fantastic. And again, um, Cambria Med Faber's ETF group has a few trend following models as well that have some pretty long-term track records. So look, it, it, it makes sense. It doesn't mean all or nothing. And more importantly, diversify, but diversify your trend following strategies as well. Um, it, it, the whole thing about sleeping at night is really key and critical. I got together with um, some college friends over the weekend and where we used to talk about going to parties and um, who the most attractive woman was in the class. Now we are sharing uh, investment advice in all of our medical conditions. It's, it's really, it's really sad, but, <laughs> but, it, but, you know, again, going forward, uh, we all work hard for our money. It's important to feel comfortable with it. It's important to do all we can to keep it. And there are really simple strategies out there that can get us all engaged in managing our money. It is a huge responsibility. And, you know, even if you have a financial advisor, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be paying attention to it. Well, Tom, always a, a great conversation. If I don't talk to you before, then I hope you and your family have a, a wonderful holiday season. Thank you for joining me. You too. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is a distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. I'm now joined by Bob Hum, U.S. Head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock, and Hitendra Varsani, Managing Director of MSCI Solutions Research. Of course, BlackRock offers the iShares lineup of ETFs, currently nearly 400 ETFs here in the U.S., over $2.2 trillion in assets. And on the Factor ETF side specifically, which we'll be focusing on this week, they offer 42 ETFs with over $170 billion. Now, MSCI is a premier provider of indexes and portfolio construction, along with risk management tools and research. And both Bob and Hitendra are now on the line with me. Bob, Hitendra, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Nate. All right. So uh, to start to here, back. yeah, to, to start here, before we get into some specific factors and the market environment moving forward, I thought it'd be interesting to discuss factor exposure that investors might already own, even if they're not necessarily aware of it, because obviously a lot of investors, they own a core broad-based exposure to U.S. and international equities. And you can pick your benchmark, right? The S&P 500, MSCI USA Index, MSCI World Index, whatever. But many investors have that broad equity allocation. They assume they're well diversified. And then when markets shift, they might be caught off guard a little bit. And so, Bob, I'll start with you on this. Can you just talk about unintended factor exposure, what that might look like in the Corvée uh, portfolio right now? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's funny that you say that. Um, you know, our, our portfolio solutions team, their, their tagline is, you know, the biggest risk in a portfolio is the risk that you don't know you're taking. And so I think this is a really important conversation right now, especially given, to your point, the volatility that we're seeing in markets. And so, you know, we analyze about 10,000 plus portfolios a year. And there's two things that we've really seen uh, percolate uh, most recently. Number one is that exposure to growth, right? And we saw that after the run-up in, in 2020. We saw a lot of investors offside, especially this year, given the, the, the rebound we've seen in value. The second thing, and this is a little bit more structural, is an overweight to smaller cap companies. Um, I, I think oftentimes people don't realize the benchmarks don't hold that much small caps in, in their portfolios, and, and we tend to see an overweight there. And what those two things have led to, especially most recently, is a more volatile portfolio. So when we looked at those 10,000 portfolios, on average, the moderate, moderate aggressive and aggressive portfolios for advisors were all more volatile than their, their stated benchmarks. And I think given this year, it's been a real challenge for investors. Yeah, I think growth is the one that really stands out to me. I think uh, a lot of people know the story coming into 2022. If you looked at the broader benchmarks, they were heavier on on technology stocks and, and, and growthier stocks. And, of course, with the market shifting, that's been a tough place to be. So I, I, to me, that's the perfect example. Uh, Hitendra, I want to bring you into the conversation here. A- anything you would add regarding uh, unintended factor exposure? Yes, uh, MSCI, uh, we believe that every investor is a factor investor. And it's times like this during high market volatility that often reveals or amplifies uh, unintended exposures. Now, whether end investors choose to manage that factor exposure or, or let it be is up to them. But that unintended exposure could be an industry, a country, a region, or it could be, as you said, a style factor such as value or growth. Now, in an environment that's been characterized by slow economic growth and surges in inflation, monetary tightening, as well as geopolitical risks, we've seen that over the last couple of years, stocks that were exposed to high risk have detracted returns, whereas portfolios exposed to value exposure have seen a tailwind. So, Hitendra, on that note, I'm curious, when investors think about factor exposure in a portfolio and, and targeting specific factors, which we'll get into that a little bit, what do you think the decision-making process should look like here? Do, do you view this as a tactical decision? Is this a longer-term strategic decision? How should investors think about this? So different investors have different time horizons. So when we speak to institutional investors, asset owners, they have very long time horizons. And their ultimate goal is to generate positive real returns. Factors have been shown uh, by both academics and practitioners to have delivered a positive risk premium over extended periods of time, over multiple market cycles. And that motivates a core or strategic allocation to certain factors like low volatility uh, or value uh, or quality. Now, over the short horizon, as we navigate through market cycles, there are some factors that may stand out more than others. And over the recent past, we've seen uh, uh, a resurgence in value investing. You know, the last 10 years or so, um, between 2010 and 2020, uh, value underperformed. But in this new market environment, we've seen uh, value come back, and it's come back big. 
Bob, what's your perspective on this topic, this, this tactical versus strategic decision making around factor exposure? Because I, I can tell you, and I know you know this, this, this is a real big challenge for advisors and investors, how, how they uh, think about factor exposure in a portfolio. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's always the debate of, of whether these are tactical tools or whether you can hold them over the long term. Uh, and, and like, uh, like most, I'll say both. But, but really, to me, uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm thinking about advisor portfolios, I think it's really about the long term. Uh, and, and how do we capture these premiums that we've seen uh, over decades uh, for each of these factors? And, and the one thing that sticks out to me, it's really about staying invested, right? So oftentimes you see that, that statistic from, um, from a lot of different publications about uh, staying in the market, right? And so I think the example that I've seen most recently is that if you were invested in the MSCI world about 20 years ago for $100,000 is about $350,000 today. If you miss the five best trading days, that's down to $250,000. Well, that same logic applies to factors, right? So we, we did that same study across each of the, the, the single factor um, offerings uh, here at MSCI and BlackRock. And just as an example for quality, so if you look at the MSCI world quality over the last 20 years, $100,000 is about $530,000 over that time period. If you miss the five best trading days for quality, $350,000. And so, again, when thinking about investing in these factors and trying to capture these long-term returns, I think it's really important to understand that you need to stay invested and you need to be invested during the, the bad times as well as the good times. To really capture that. So I think that's an important decision for many of the advisors listening to this call is, you know, are they going to be able to make those right calls at the right time? Or is it better to stay invested over the long term? No, I think that's an excellent way to frame it. I mean, the bottom line is, if you miss the best day in factors, then you, you miss the premium o- over the long run. I, I, I love that. Um, okay, so with that backdrop, let's look ahead to 2023 and do so through this lens of factor exposure. And I had an opportunity to review the iShares 2023 Investor Guide that came out recently. Let me give sort of the main headline here, and then I'd love to hear how that might influence uh, factor tilting in a portfolio. So in a nutshell, the expectation that the the base case in this guide is for a higher real interest rate regime and elevated core inflation uh, sticking around. If we assume that'll be the case, which I would agree. That that looks like a pretty good bet right now. I, I, I know with this morning's inflation number and what the market's doing, some people may counter that. But I, I think we have to, again, take a longer-term viewpoint here. So if we assume that is the, the case, how does that impact where investors might tilt on factors? And, and Bob, I'll start with you here. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's funny. I, I looked at this morning's print, and, and it's, it's, it's a weird world when you're cheering for 7% inflation. <laughs> uh, the world is turned upside down. So uh, pretty incredible where we've come from the last few years. Um, but look, I, I think if we think about 2022, what were the two things driving markets? Not surprising. It was volatility and inflation. We don't think those are going away in 2023. The Fed is still going to have to bring down inflation from that 7% to 2 to 3%. And that's going to be painful for investors. And, and that is going to lead to, to, to rising interest rates that we've seen so far throughout the year. And so when thinking about that environment, I think there's really two factors that come into play. One, when thinking about inflation, it's value. 
right? So if we think about that classic value versus growth, I actually try to break it down in, in simpler terms. It's long duration versus short duration. So long duration assets tend to be growth assets. They, you're being paid for the cash flows in the future, where short duration value, you're getting paid for the cash flows today. Think of even dividends. And so in a rising rate or high interest rate environment, you would expect those growth assets to underperform, just like we've seen so far this year. On the second piece of this, volatility, right? Not surprising, minimum volatility tends to do well in volatile periods. We've seen that so far this year. We've seen it over the last decade that we've been running that strategy. But what I'd like to look at is maybe history. Um, and so if we think about this environment, we really can't get back to an inflationary environment to these levels for about 40 years. And so we did a study recently looking at the stagflationary environment from the 70s to the mid-80s. This is when unemployment plus inflation tops 20%. And in that market environment, we saw equities do about 2% annualized over that 15-year period. What were two of the best performing factors? Value returning over 7%, low volatility returning Mm. nearly 14%. And so, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it oftentimes rhymes. And we think in this environment, you know, value and minimum volatility should be two of the factors to look at, especially going forward, and especially when thinking about how advisor portfolios are positioned today, which tend to be a little bit more growth-heavy and higher, uh, have higher volatility. Hitendra, what's your perspective on all this? If we do assume higher for longer interest rates and inflation remaining sticky, how does that impact factor exposure in your mind? So there's a number of different considerations here. So um, the stagflation environment, um, I think, is critical. So we've experienced that uh, this year. So low growth, high inflation. Our studies, consistent with Bob's, also showed since the 1970s, um, factor indexes like uh, high dividend yield uh, and minimum volatility tend to fare quite well. Uh, In a rising interest rate environment, uh, value tends to outperform uh, historically. Um, another consideration is just on a risk-adjusted return basis. So minimum volatility is a strategy that hasn't only delivered positive active returns this, this year. It's also done with much lower volatility as well. And over multiple cycles, minimum volatility has had higher risk-adjusted returns. So on a sharp ratio basis, it's structurally higher than market returns. So in an environment where uh, uncertainty is still high, uh, growth is still weak, uh, many parts of the developed world, and there are some recessionary concerns, um, and central banks are also concerned about raising rates too fast, um, that will make the recession harder. Minimum volatility is a natural tool uh, in a portfolio context to help kind of stabilize the overall risk Uh, of the portfolio. Now, consistent with Bob's comments on value, we also had a time when markets have corrected quite significantly. Yes, we've seen some relief rally over the recent past, but during early stages of market recovery, it tends to be the value stocks that rebound first uh, and the most. So those that are bottom fishing, uh, one way of identifying those stocks is through uh, their value exposure. We only have a a few minutes left here. I want to make sure we briefly talk due diligence when it comes to factor investing. This is a topic I always like to focus on. Obviously, it's an important one for advisors and investors. And let's say 
uh, investors do want to tilt towards value or minimum volatility. If you look at the ETFs currently on the market, there's a full spectrum, right? There are ETFs that have a, a lot of holdings, they're much broader, and then there are ETFs that are much more concentrated. They, they would have what I would call a higher active share. And so I'm curious what you think some of the key considerations for investors should be when looking at factor tilts uh, in a portfolio. And, and Bob, I'll, I'll toss this one your way to begin. Yeah, sure. So uh, I don't know if you knew this, Nate. I actually started my career, or, or earlier in my career, I was a, a due diligence analyst and, uh, for an asset manager. And we used to do, for mutual fund due diligence, it was uh, the three P's, right? It was people, process, and performance. And so when I'm thinking about factor ETFs, I think you should take that same due diligence lens and bring that over to the factory TF landscape. So when thinking about people, it's really about the issuer and the index provider, right? How do they have experience managing factor assets uh, over time? From a process, I think this is probably the most important. That's about the index methodology and construction, right? So you just mentioned for value, I think you want to think about, is it market cap weighted or is it value weighted, right? That will have an impact on the exposure you're getting to value uh, companies. Uh, for low volatility, does it have sector constraints, right? So, you know, USMB or our minimum volatility ETFs are constrained on sectors plus or minus 5%. If you didn't have those constraints, a, a sector like utilities could end up being 20 to 30% of the portfolio when the market's at three. So I think really in, important um, things to think about. And then performance, right? Is it performing in line with expectations, right? So in a year like this year, is your minimum volatility or low volatility portfolio uh, delivering that downside risk in the value? Really, have we seen outperformance uh, in your value uh, strategy? So I think the same due diligence process that you're the deep due diligence process that you're doing for your active managers should be applied for factory ETFs because you are taking active risk, right? You're deviating away from the market. Hitendra, anything you would uh, add here? Any uh, final thoughts? Sure. So when it comes to index construction, um, whatever region that's being targeted, world, USA, emerging market, um, it's always good to have a great starting point in terms of market cap representation um, versus, say, um, a number lock index, which may not represent the whole market. So that's the first step. Second step from a factor perspective is um, know, know your exposures, like we started off the call. So if, if we're looking at quality of value, these are fundamental um, factors. Uh, clients often uh, prefer those to be sector neutral, whereas if it's a momentum strike type strategy, then um, sector rotation, industry rotation, style rotation is an integral part of that momentum. It follows whatever's winning. Um, so I think here is just be aware of what your exposures are and why those exposures are there uh, and also have good uh, market cap coverage uh, as well to implement that strategy. Well, gentlemen, as always, just fantastic insight into factor investing, which does seem to be uh, much more relevant now than maybe the uh, the last 10 years or so. Should, should be interesting uh, to watch moving forward. But thank you both for joining me this week. Absolutely. Great being on. Thank you. That was Bob Hum, U.S. Head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock, and Hitendra Varsani, Managing Director of MSCI Solutions Research. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, John Hancock Investment Management. To learn more about John Hancock Investment Management ETFs, visit jhinvestments.com slash ETFs. Next week, as I mentioned earlier, to uh, close out the year, 
I'll be joined by Vetify's Laura Krieger and Morningstar's Ben Johnson. We will do a full recap of ETFs in 2022 and perhaps more importantly, look ahead to 2023. Until then, have a great week, everyone.